Hey, this is Dan Kogan. I'm one of the pastors at Grace Family in Pleasant Hill, Missouri, and this is our podcast. I want to thank you for joining us today and let you know you matter to us because you matter to God. Enjoy the message. Have you ever made a decision, however big or small, that seemed to just follow you everywhere you went? Maybe you earned a nickname when you were in high school for doing something that at the time seemed either impressive or funny. But when that nickname followed you into adulthood, you would have rather that name just be forgotten. Anybody relate to that? I won't share my nicknames from school, but you can relate. Well, Amy and I have some mutual friends from before we were married that for one reason or another, every now and then they'll get a wild hair and they'll dig out some old embarrassing photos and they'll scan them and post them on Facebook. And fortunately, the embarrassment from those pictures is only in the form of bad fashion choices. But it can serve as a reminder to us that we don't usually like it when people remember us today for the mistakes of yesterday. Amen? Well, we've seen this in the media over the past couple of years where politicians or celebrities will make a regrettable decision years and in some cases even decades ago, and it comes back to haunt them today, right? And generally, we don't want to be judged based upon uh, those actions. We want to be judged only on the praiseworthy actions and decisions, even if we're not willing to extend that same courtesy to others. It doesn't come naturally to us to extend that courtesy, that expectation to others, but we don't want them to judge us for our mistakes of the past. So I want to ask you to humor me for a moment and try to think of a time when someone you know has hurt or offended you. You have that person in mind? If you you can picture that person in your mind, I want to ask you this. Is it your instinct to think of that person who has hurt or offended you fondly? Or do you think of them only in terms of the way that they hurt you, the way that they sinned against you? Because there, there are certainly exceptions to this rule, but in general, Those people who have hurt and offended us, that's not the only interaction we had with them. In many cases, we had years of experience with this person, good experiences, and then they've done something to hurt or offend us. And now when we think about that person, we categorize them based almost exclusively on the wrongs that they have done. Well, today we're continuing a sermon series on the life of the 12 disciples. And I'll just state up front to avoid any accidental plagiarism that I and this series owes much to Pastor John MacArthur for his excellent book, 12 Ordinary Men. And if this series so far has been interesting to you or has been a blessing to you as much as it has to me, I would highly recommend that you pick up a copy of that book. So this morning, we're considering the life of the Apostle John. And if you're familiar with the narrative of the New Testament, when you think of John, you probably think of the gospel that bears his name, the gospel of John or the the little letters that he wrote, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, or maybe you think of the book of Revelation at the back of your Bibles. And if you know anything about him from these writings or from church history, when you think of the Apostle John, you probably think of an elder, wise statesman of the church. Which is understandable because now we know John for what he became later in life. On the other hand, if your impression of who John was was based upon, in any way, medieval art, you may picture a a pasty, effeminate, wimpy little guy 
which is ironic because that's something that John never was. We learned last week about John's older brother, James, who was a brash, prideful, abrasive brood. And and John was a lot like his brother in those ways. Together, they were referred to by Jesus as the sons of thunder. In Luke 9, we find James and John asking Jesus if he wanted them to call fire down from heaven and consume this town of people that didn't receive Jesus. In Mark 10, you may recall James and John approaching Jesus to ask that one of them could sit on his right and one of them could sit on his left in eternity, which in itself is actually a very good request. I think sometimes we hear that request, like, man, they were arrogant. That's, that's a good request. Shouldn't we all want to be close to Jesus? But when you pair that request with the disciples' ongoing debate about who was the greatest, we come to realize that their motives were probably not all that pure in asking. So it's fascinating to me that John came to be known as the disciple whom Jesus loved, especially given our tendency when we think of those who have hurt or offended us based purely on those offenses. All throughout John's gospel, he never refers to himself by his own name. The only John he makes reference to is John the Baptist. When he refers to himself in his gospel, he calls himself the disciple Jesus loved. Because John wasn't always this gentle elder statesman, patriarch of the church that we think of today. He wasn't always the older brother who wrote to his fellow believers referring to them as my little children. So if you have your Bibles, would you turn with me to Mark chapter 9, verse 38? We're going to read from there in just a moment. Before we hear from God's word, though, I just want to give you a glimpse of where we're headed this morning. First, I want to try to help us see from John's life how the love of Christ changes us and enables us to live for his glory rather than our own. That we don't earn his favor by changing our behavior, but rather our genuinely changed lives come as the result of Jesus' saving love. Specifically, I want to show how true life in Christ leads us to a balance of zeal for truth, and selfless love. And secondly, for those here today who may not yet be followers of Christ, I want to show you the unbelievable kindness of God and then invite you to be a part of this family. So just get ready for that. If you are not presently a follower of Jesus, today is the day of salvation. Amen? So the main point I want to communicate this morning is that the saving love of Jesus meets us where we are, changes us, and frees us to live for his glory rather than our own. Look with me at Mark chapter 9, verses 38 through 41. It says, John said to him, teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, don't stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly, I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink, because you belong to Christ, will by no means lose his reward. In Matthew, Mark, and Luke, 
This is what we call the synoptic gospels because they share basic structure. They tell essentially the same events. This is the only time that we see the apostle John speaking for himself. That's kind of interesting, isn't it? Because we think of someone like John and we're like, he's written, you know, after Paul and Luke, he's written more of the New Testament than any other human author. And this is the only time in the synoptic gospels we see John speaking for himself. And I wish that in this one instance where we see John speaking, I wish that I could say that I didn't identify with him, but I really see a lot of myself in the way that he thinks and acts. Because John, like me, like many of us, was prone to think in terms of us versus them. But I'm so grateful in the Gospels in general and in Mark in particular for the unflattering picture that it paints for us of the 12 disciples. It's easy for us to read accounts like this blissfully unaware that we have the luxury that John didn't of seeing the great picture, the grand narrative. He didn't have that luxury like we do. So when John tells Jesus, hey, we saw this guy casting out demons in your name, and I told him to take a hike because he didn't belong to our congregation or our denomination, our inclination is to act flabbergasted. Well, I never. How could he? Who does he... If we're honest with ourselves, though, we see a lot of ourselves in these unflattering pictures. We may give lip service to other denominations, other congregations, even here in our town, that they're part of the kingdom. But in our hearts, we like to think we're better, don't we? And then these reminders come to us in the Gospels and even in the headlines. Oh, yeah, no. The Gospel of the Kingdom is not the Southern Baptist Convention. Now... (laughs) (laughs) We we can talk later. So, no, I'm not talking about affirming cults. And we'll get into that a bit later as we consider the balance of love and truth. But I'm talking about other actually Christian denominations with whom we may have secondary differences. And that's what was happening here with John. He says we, we told him to stop because he wasn't following us. He doesn't say because he wasn't following you. So we tried to stop him because he wasn't following us. You see, the Bible often acts as a mirror. Did anyone wake up this morning and not like what they saw in the mirror? (laughs) Man, I did not like what I saw this morning when I got up. But it doesn't really make sense to get mad at the mirror, does it? How dare you, mirror? I don't look like that. That's that's exactly what I look like. That's the, the idea of a mirror is to show you what you look like so that you can address the problems. I may not have addressed them perfectly, but trust me, I look a lot better right now than I did this morning. But that's exactly what we do when we read a passage like this and think to ourselves, I would never do that. But there's something else going on here that I want us to see that can be easy for us to miss. And this is just a generally helpful tip in reading and understanding the Bible. Many of you know this. For those of you who don't, this is free. The chapter and verse divisions in our Bibles are not part of the inspired text of Scripture. God didn't breathe out the text and say, verse 38, John said to him. No, the the number divisions are just there to help us find our place. But they have this unintended effect 
especially with section headers. Maybe your section header reads something like, anyone not against us is for us, like mine reads. We have this tendency of thinking it's like episodes of a sitcom. And we read that section, and we put our Bibles down, and we pat ourselves on our back because we've read our episode of the sitcom. (laughs) But in verses 33 through 37 we can gain some helpful insight into exactly why John was telling Jesus that he tried to stop this guy from casting out demons in Jesus' name. And if it weren't such a sad episode, it would be a pretty funny passage. Look with me at Mark 9, starting in verse 33. And they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent. For on the way, they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve, and he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child, and he put him in the midst of them, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. And it's at this point that John tells Jesus that he sent that guy packing. Jesus says, welcome these little children. And John felt compelled to confess to Jesus that he had done exactly the opposite of that. You see, Jesus knew what they were talking about on the way. He wasn't trying to learn something about them. And what's encouraging to note here is that in spite of John's pride in arguing with the other disciples about who was greatest, he hears Jesus' gentle rebuke and responds by confessing what he had done. And so we hear terms like repentance and confession, and we run them through our modern filter of an authoritarianism. We don't like to be under authority. That's not natural to us. What is natural to us is doing our own thing. That's not American. That's human. That goes back to Adam in the garden. But Jesus, the creator of and God over everything, models a humility in the Gospels that is striking. A humility that would stoop to wash the feet of the very disciples who fought and argued over who was the greatest. A humility that would ultimately lay down his life, the just for the unjust. So when Jesus rebukes the disciples here in Mark 9, it isn't from a place of arrogance. No, Jesus loves these men. And his rebuke is a call to biblical repentance. Repentance isn't about some skewed authoritarianism. Biblical repentance is basically this. You're placing your hope in a false God that will ultimately fail you. Take your hope off of that false God and place it on the one true God who will never fail. That's repentance. But we hear these terms and we think that it's condemning and judging. And we don't like that. You see, we have this tendency to take these good things that God has created and turn them into ultimate things. That's idolatry. Placing our trust in the creation rather than the creator. And yet here we see Jesus, the creator, 
calling out this idolatry in the hearts of not just the 12, but the inner circle of Peter, James, and John. He's calling out this idolatry in their heart. And miraculously, it causes John to repent. So the question we have to ask ourselves at this point is, is this happening in my life? When I sense this kind of conviction, the kind of conviction the disciples experience here, do I respond the way John did? Do I acknowledge my sin in an effort to come closer to Jesus, to know him more, or do I remain in my rebellion and self-reliance? So later in his life, when John was writing his gospel account, it's important for us to remember this event because I think that this was a turning point in John's life. MacArthur says of John here that, quote, John was always committed to the truth, and there's certainly nothing wrong with that, but it's not enough. Zeal for the truth must be balanced by love for people. Truth without love has no decency. It's just brutality. On the other hand, love without truth has no character. It's just hypocrisy, end quote. So Jesus was forming John. He, he saw John's passion for truth, and modeled for him truth balanced with love. And he didn't simply categorize John based on the way he was acting in that moment. This was the disciple whom Jesus loved. Let me back up for a moment. Jesus didn't categorize John based on the way he was acting in the moment. He didn't categorize John based on the way he was acting. That was the disciple whom Jesus loved. Let that sink in for a moment. He didn't just love some future version of John. He just loved him. Jesus loves us into holiness If you're trying to work your way into the love of God by means of holiness, you're going the wrong direction. You're like the kids on the playground trying to climb up a slide backwards. Except you'll never get there, no matter how hard you try. It's not just funny, it's sad. (laughs) Because we keep sliding down. We'll never make it to the top. We'll never earn God's love because Jesus loves us into holiness. He sees us where we are and he loves us anyway. He loves us so much that he won't leave us the way we are. This love was enabling John to love others. Jesus was showing John that love isn't a reward. It isn't payment due for improved behavior. And John was becoming painfully aware that he didn't deserve to be loved by Jesus. So when he refers to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved, we shouldn't read that as him bragging about it, but instead as a reminder that John was life-changingly impacted by Jesus' undeserved love for him. Every time in John's gospel you see him refer to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved, read it like this. I don't know why he loved me. Thank God he did. Like John, those who are in Christ should of all people be becoming the most humble, loving people in the world. When we consider Jesus' saving love for us, it shouldn't ever cause us to be puffed up with pride. 
It should humble us. It should bring us to our knees in worship. Galatians 5 tells us what the fruit, the result of the love of Christ in the life of the believer is. It's love. And it manifests itself in various ways. Joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, self-control. It's all love. And biblical love cannot be divorced from truth. We can't truly love someone and just ignore, or worse, affirm sin in their life. And John knew this well. Later in his life, John got a lot better at balancing truth with love. When he was younger, he erred on the side of truth without love. Many of us today err on the side of some form of love without truth. But as I've said, that isn't genuine biblical love. That's simply an unwillingness to have difficult conversations. It's not either love or truth. It's both truth and love. Listen to what John says in his second epistle. 2 John 1, verses 4 through 11. I rejoiced greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth. Just as we were commanded by the Father. And now I ask you, not as though I were writing you a new commandment, but the one we've had from the beginning, that we love one another. And this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment, just as you have heard from the beginning, so that you should walk in it. For many deceivers have gone out into the world. Those who do not confess the coming of Jesus in the flesh. Such a one is a deceiver and the antichrist. Watch yourselves so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. And listen to this. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ doesn't have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. For whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. MacArthur again says, quote, Love and truth must be maintained in perfect balance. Truth is never to be abandoned in the name of love, but love is not to be deposed in the name of truth, end quote. It's not loving to ignore false teaching. That's a hard truth. It's not loving to affirm a cult that believes an extra-biblical version of Jesus. It's not loving to ignore sin. It's not loving to say, I know you're continuing on in sin, but don't worry about it. In fact, that's the most hateful thing that we could do. As I said, it's fascinating to me that John saw himself not merely as a son of thunder. He didn't view himself through the merely human lens of what he had done. He had learned from Jesus that his past didn't define him. What defined him, what defines every person who is in Christ is Jesus' love for them. So when the Father looks upon John in eternity, he no longer sees the boastful young man who wanted to call down fire from heaven and consume his enemies. Or who told someone that they weren't really a Christian because they weren't part of the SBC. Or who argued with the other disciples about who was the greatest. No, when the Father looks at John, when the Father looks at me, when he looks at any who are in Christ, he sees the perfect spotless righteousness of Christ. But here's what I want us to remember. Remember, 
John embraced his identity as forgiven, but he didn't go on living and thinking and acting the way he did before. He didn't say, well, shoot, if Jesus loves me as I am, I see no reason to change. But don't we do that? Instead, John recognized that, listen to this, while he could never live a holy enough life to reconcile himself to the Father, that didn't mean that he wasn't called to live a life of holiness. Our temptation is to use the grace of God as an excuse to remain in our sin, both big and small. Perhaps you've given in to the lure of internet pornography. And you keep telling yourself it's okay because we're not saved by our own righteousness. Or maybe you've become lazy in your spiritual disciplines. And you tell yourself it's okay because it would be legalistic to expect someone to read and pray all all the time. Or maybe you've stopped prioritizing your commitment to your brothers and sisters in Christ. And the first thing to go from your busy schedule is gathered worship. And it doesn't bother your conscience a bit because we've grown so accustomed to using the grace of God as a license or rather an excuse to sin and to remain in our sin. One of the greatest lessons we learn from the life of John is that the saving love of Jesus meets us where we are, changes our identity, and enables us to live in a new way that brings glory to him. It was this same John who wrote in 1 John 3, 8 that whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. That's a hard passage for us, isn't it? Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. But thank God, it's also this same John who tells us in 1 John 2, 1, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if you do, we have an advocate with the Father. Christ Jesus, the righteous. And while John recognizes that our old sinful nature still exists, he makes it abundantly and unmistakably clear that as Christians, we've also been given a new nature in Christ. You're no longer just in Adam. Now you're in Christ. We no longer have just our our nature given to us naturally by Adam. We've been supernaturally given a new nature in Christ. And to continue in sin is radically opposed to that new nature in Christ. So for those of us here who are in Christ, I want to ask you four questions. Has the love of God changed you? Is your life, like John's, bearing witness to the life-changing power of Jesus? Are you pursuing a balance of biblical truth with biblical love? And lastly, do you identify as one who is loved by Jesus? Not because of what you can do or have done, but instead one who, because of Christ's incomparable and unexplainable love for you, now lives to the glory of God. For those of you who may be here today who have not trusted Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, I just have one question. Why not now? Having seen the love of Jesus for someone like John, not because, but in spite of himself, are you ready today to repent and follow him? 
I hope you enjoyed the podcast today. If you did, be sure to subscribe to our show so the most recent episode will always be in your feed, ready whenever you are. And secondly, if Grace Family has impacted you and you'd like to help us continue to reach others, you can click the link in the description and make a donation now. And we'll see you next time on the Grace Family Podcast.